would like to thank everyone for uh, joining us again uh, and for attending uh, this panel. As I mentioned uh, before, one of the key differentiating elements of this forum is that we have uh, representatives from the major stakeholders across the industry to come together and debate critical issues uh, about decarbonization. And I think one of the most uh, critical issues has to do with policy making, the regulatory decarbonization roadmap for shipping. Uh, and uh, I would like to thank John for moderating this panel. And we have uh, a tremendous uh, group of panelists. I will let John introduce them. So I would like to welcome you all and thank you for being with us today. Uh, every panel of this forum is really top level, but I'm really looking forward to, to this one because I think uh, this is such a key topic for the industry. So John, and uh, thank you to all of you for joining us today, all the panelists. Thank you, Nicholas, and good morning to everyone. Uh, I'm delighted to be here and I thank, thank Nicholas and all of his team for organizing, again, an outstanding symposium. And uh, welcome to all of our panelists as well and to all of you watching today. My name is John Keough. I am a senior partner in the firm Clyde & Co. I'm based in New York and I am the co-head of the firm's North American practice for international shipping, marine, energy, and trade. Now we do have a distinguished panel today. Let me just briefly introduce them. And we have a, a, a hot topic, a series of these hot topics to run through today. But with us, we have Sana Henriksen, who is the Senior Regulatory Affairs Manager at AP Muller Mares. Caroline Yang, who is the president of the Singapore Shipowners Association. Magda Kopinska, the Director for Innovative and Sustainable Mobility at the European Commission Directorate General, the Directorate General for Mobility and Transport. Demetrius Fafaflios, who is the Chair of Intercargo and President Director of Fafaflios Shipping. And also joining us, I think later on the panel, is Guy Platten, who is the Secretary General of the International Chamber of Shipping. And last but not least is Lasse Christofferson, who is the CEO of Torvald Clavinus. Panelists all welcome. We will be addressing the regulatory aspects of the shipping industry in seeking a zero carbon approach to shipping. And, and with us first, let me turn to you, Sane. At Maersk, what do you see as sort of your wish list? What would you most like to see uh, if you could have a wish list with the regulators to transition into a green shipping uh, economy? Thank you, John. And, and uh, yeah, and uh, good morning, good afternoon to, to everyone. Good evening, uh, wherever you are. So, so um, I would say I would I would say three main points uh, of such uh, list. Well, first of all, of course, high ambitions uh, leading to real reductions. So uh, when we at Mask in 2018 came with our ambition for carbon neutrality in 2050, it seemed like a moonshot. Uh, and the same did the IMO's uh, target for 50% uh, in the 2050. Uh, and everyone can agree that that's that's no longer enough. So regulators really need to push high ambitions at the IMO, and they have a chance to do that 
at the, at the revision in 2023, a revision of the IMO strategy. So, and, and, and I would also say we were quite disappointed with the lack of ambition in the short-term measure that the IMO agreed on in November last year. And so we really hope that uh, this will be the year that the IMO will raise the bar. So uh, that's related a little bit to my second point, which is future-proof regulation. So the development of fuels is really happening exponentially. So we need to go away from business as, as usual and focus on a flexibility in the regulation that can encompass a wide varieties of, of fuels uh, also in the future. And at the same time, it needs to ensure uh, stability and certainty. Uh, and we also have to stop talking about just one fuel for shipping. We often hear in the public debate that this or that fuel does not have the necessary uh, scalability, et cetera. And, and uh, the reality is that it doesn't need to. Uh, it's, it's clear now that uh, there will be different fuels for different kinds of shipping and different kinds of vessels. Short-term shipping may use electricity and hydrogen and uh, deep sea shipping may use uh, renewable methanol or ammonia. So um, it's really important that, that the regulators make good solid framework that can encompass uh, many types of fuels uh, and, and also in, in order to avoid uh, stranded assets in the future. And then finally, the last uh, third point is a life cycle perspectives in the regulation. Uh, and it's very relevant today because just now uh, the IMO is, is initiating their discussions on this topic, which is extremely important. Uh, and, and from their side, we really uh, hope that uh, and encourage the IMO to include uh, lifecycle perspectives in the regulation so that, so that the regulation takes into account also emission from uh, production and uh, distribution and not only what comes out of the chimney. Uh, and, and this is, of course, important to ensure that, that the future fuels that are pushed actually uh, bring down uh, greenhouse gas emissions and does not emit elsewhere in the chain. So, so those would be my three points, uh, high ambitions, future proof regulation and, and life cycle perspective. Thank you. Oh, you're muted, John. <laughs> Sorry. Still on my first cup of coffee, I can't, I can't unmute. What do you believe should be done to accelerate the efforts in the industry and in reg among regulators, the decarbonization efforts? Is there, is there any particular step that you have in mind? Yeah, well, well, I, I think acceleration is really a good uh, choice uh, of words here. It's, it's really key. Uh, and and uh, especially we have to, to look at the solutions that we can, that we can act on now. And, and MASK, we, we did that when we uh, now in February um, presented our plans for the world's first carbon neutral liner vessel in 2023, uh, which is going to sail on, on renewable methanol. And, and in that sense, we, we, we believe we sort of took the, the first step to break the chicken and egg situation. Um, and, and now we really need regulators to support, uh, to, to both kickstart the, the demand and not least the supply because actually we don't even know if there's supply enough of renewable methanol in a few years. So, so we really rely on regulators on this one, uh, that they not only uh, push, but also stimulate a faster development of, of these uh, types of fuels. And this content, uh, we also really want to, to, to firmly say that the IMO needs to start the discussion on market-based measures, which we really hope will start this year. 
uh, in order to close the competitiveness gap between uh, between fossil fuels and new fuels. Uh, so we need we need regulation that that of course focuses on the GHG content or in, in the emissions, but we also need the financial support, like for instance, the current uh, mechanisms in the EU, uh, but there's also a proposal from the industry uh, to the IMO for a 500 billion dollars uh, uh, R&D fund. And, and we really uh, hope that the IMO will, will uh, consider this uh, also this year. And then finally, uh, a fundamental premise is of course, uh, customers engagement and, and um, and our good cooperation with customers like H&M, who use our uh, carbon neutral eco delivery product is, of course, the key in all this. And fortunately, we see the demand increasing, but of course, we, we need, in need further increase uh, for, for, uh, for shipping to decarbonize. Yeah, so that would be my points there. Thanks. Thank you, Sana. Thank you. Uh, Caroline, you've heard that, you know, that here's the platform Sana's described. As a representative of the Singapore Ship Owners Association, can you tell us, are, are, the, are your ship owners aligned on what should be done, what steps should be taken, and what, what do you see as the key steps that should be taken so that regulators like the EU and the IMO hear your voice and acknowledge and include your ship owners in what's going on? Okay. Thanks a lot. Uh, thank you, um, Nicholas, and thank you, Capital League, for having me on this uh, panel session. So, um, so Singapore is actually an international maritime centre, and our base of the owners or ship owners are diverse with MNCs and SMEs. And because of its, the, the vibrancy of the ecosystem, um, our views are quite international in nature. But um, the Singapore Shipping Association is also part of the uh, ASEAN Ship Owners Association and also the Asian Ship Owners Association. So um, these associations are active as well, and they also have strong views. Um, so I am hopeful that in the wider IMO family, that since Asia does account for about at least 50% of the shipping tonnage, that we ensure that the Asian perspectives are taken into account when policies and uh, regulations are met. So on Sunny's point of view, where um, we talk about acceleration or at the IMO, um, we, I, I do agree that um, IMO must demonstrate that it is serious and it must take leadership and towards um, decarbonization. Um, for, for, for the Asian perspective, is the, it is important that um, we do not want to have individual states or groups of states um, unilaterally passing regulation that would upset the level playing field that is crucial for global shipping. So um, IMO must demonstrate that it's prepared to act. So the MEPC that's coming on in June is quite important because it needs to show that it's passing very robust evidence-based regulations for decarbonization. So, um, we are also supporting the paper for the IMRB, um, a fund to collect a fund for the R&D for decarbonization. Thank you. Thank you, Caroline. Is, is there any yeah. particular step that you would stress that your organization would like to see the IMO take to help accelerate their efforts? Um, 
just just to also echo uh, Sunning, I think the uh, the package of the short term operational and technical measures for existing ships, I think, um, needs to be pushed and uh, need to be more robust. So that's where we see as one area. And the other area, of course, is what I said about the IMRB. Um, we feel that the R&D is critical. And um, if this IMRB promises to draw directly from the ship's contributions to support the development of technology that can be uh, proven to reduce shipping's emissions. Thanks, Caroline. Lasse, you, you've heard what our fellow panelists have said. Tell us your view on, on your perspective. Where is, where is the shipping going and decarbonization? What's the realistic, practical view in your point, in your perspective on this? Yeah, thank you, John. And, and, and for me, we need to start with two fundamental premises. One is that we need to be aligned with Paris. So to dull ourselves that we can get to 50% in 2050, forget it. I mean, we can believe as an industry we will, but then somebody and the next generation will call me 2030s and tell us, forget it. Whether you have a vessel which is five year old in, in 2050, if it carries carbon, it will not be able to trade. I think this is just a reality. We cannot dull ourselves to say that we as an industry can define our own destiny unless we do something. And that window is now. Uh, and the good news is, of course, that we will change the whole world fleet within the next 30 years. So this is the window of opportunity to make sure that people are not locked into all the technology. The second premise is that whatever happens, the market will not solve this itself, period. Fuel, uh, hydrocarbon fuels are competitive. And if the market are to decide, carbon fuels will be still dominated. Uh, there's no way, even if future electricity is free, zero emission fuels will not be able to compete neck-to-neck uh, -neck with carbon-based fuels. So we need to intervene in the market. And obviously, we all want that to happen in IMO. Uh, but when that doesn't happen in IMO, we should praise national countries like Norway and others, regions like EU, to push this agenda as long as they do it uh, with the global solution in mind. In other words, we need to design these measures so that they are scalable into a global solution, but they can start national or regional. I think that's, uh, that's what needed to get, uh, get going. And then- uh, How do you fight so, the market resistance? How do, you, how do you forestall the market resistance? I think we need to do three things. Start, start with one and stop with two. One, we need to start discussing the real price on carbon. The intervention in the market, the way you get the shipping markets to regulate and find the solutions themselves is to put a price on the stuff you don't want. Uh, and then there are two other things we need to stop doing. One is to, to say as an industry, we can't afford it. Shipping and ship owners have never carried the bill of fuel. That is eventually carried on to, uh, to the end user of the product or the customer. Uh, and second is to say that we don't have the technology and solutions. That's not correct. We know for sure that the future fuel will be based on hydrogen. Whether it's added CO2 to methanol or uh, nitrogen into ammonia or as a pure gas or liquid, that depends on the use, but we know that and we have the technology. So uh, this is something we can solve. It's just a question of understanding the urgency of it and get it done. And in my view, 
to put that price on carbon and create the mechanisms that get us out of the chicken and the egg, where nobody invests in fuel infrastructure because we don't have ships, and nobody invests in zero emission ships because you don't have fuels. Thank you, thank you, Demetrius. What do you tell us about your concerns with the regulators and and industry group initiatives here? Are you concerned with a patchwork of regulations, but but no overall uniform approach? John, thank you very much. And again, much appreciation to Nico Sordaga and all the team at Capital Link and to my fellow panelists. Just to give you an example of this huge patchwork, uh, I represent the, the dry bulk uh, industry. Uh, we have uh, more than 12,000 vessels in the industry, 900 million dead weight, uh, with the 20% of shipping's emissions but 50% of the uh, global ton miles. Um, and, and this industry has a, at least 400,000 uh, seafarers in it and we mustn't forget them. Um, we're also very uh, fortunate because of the structure of our sector that we have uh, amongst the lowest carbon intensities uh, of all the marine transport sectors, um, as was confirmed in the IMO fourth uh, greenhouse study. But even though I've attempted to just give you a background on one particular sector, shipping is incredibly complex. Um, we have to try to assist the regulators to understand the different sectors and the different economic models within this huge industry. Um, regulation must be effective, balanced, and not just fall on the ship owners automatically and by default. I think we've had uh, Lasse saying before about the the charterers, who are the economic operators, and they play a structural uh, role in the bulk tramp industry, and they determine uh, a ship's carbon footprint. They're the cargo interests, uh, the fuel suppliers, the shipbuilders, and the engine makers. And the easy solution is not always the correct one, especially uh, with dealing when dealing with an industry as complex and diverse as ours. And regulators should perhaps seek to reconcile environmental imperatives with existing business models, especially when the latter are as highly efficient as they are in the tramp bulk oil sector. So How can they best do that? How, how can they best do that in, the, in a fragmented industry like shipping and the supply chain you described? Any key steps they should focus on? I, I think that regulations, uh, um, Sane said that we, we, we're, we're going away from a one size fits all. So we're, we're, we're leaving uh, an era where uh, hydrocarbons uh, have powered, uh, especially the deep sea fleet. So we're leaving this, we're leaving this uh, 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 era. It's, it's probably like when the sail, sails move to steam, uh, we are making this very, very big transition. Now, uh, if you have uh, uh, these, all of these different fuels, uh, you, uh, alternative fuels, all of these alternative fuels have to match the uh, demand for these alternative fuels by the individual sectors. So for instance, the liner sector, will have a different set of demands. The bulk uh, tram sector will have a different set of demands, the cruise sector, et cetera, et cetera. So um, regulations could be uh, better matched to the sectors by fully understanding the, uh, the, the economic dynamics of each sector. So for instance, 
in a liner sector, you have to deliver on time. You have to, you, uh, speed and consistency of service is very, very important. In the tram bulk sector, uh, efficiency is very important because usually the most efficient vessel gets the business. This is a, it's quite a different, it's quite a different set of uh, uh, parameters uh, which have to be addressed. So, um, you know, we, 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 uh, we obviously want international regulations, and I think that's been echoed by uh, the previous uh, speakers, uh, but we also have to deal with, uh, let's say, uh, more regional regulations. And uh, maybe I can talk about that later on uh, if, you, if you give me a chance. That's Thank fine. You. I, I'd love to. I'd love to. Why don't we turn now to our key regulator here, Magda. You've heard the ship owners describe some of their concerns. I know you've taken quite an initiative at the European Commission to engage and collaborate with industry leaders in the work that you're doing. Could you describe, I think, first of all, just sort of where are we on the regulatory front? Where are we going next? And, and, and how can there be a uniform approach that avoids this patchwork concern that, that the industry has. Um, thank you, John, and good, good afternoon to everybody. And thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to be on that panel. And the words of apology, if you hear a humming noise in the background, in, it's not a wind, I'm not unfortunately on the sea coast, it's the air code that switches on and off regardless of the outside temperature. Outside temperature being plus six, I don't need air code, but it's working, sorry about that. There's absolutely nothing I can do. It's easier to sort out the problem of decarbonization of shipping globally than to sort out my air conditioning in the office. Again, apologies for that. But now uh, to, to seriously uh, go back to, 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 your, to your question, John, and I also heard what you said to Dimitrios that there will be probably another round about you know, the various levels of regulatory approaches. But I, I, I'd like to say that, that what I have heard so far is actually extremely encouraging uh, because the message I'm, I'm hearing from everybody on the panel is that decarbonization of shipping is at the center of everybody's agenda at this moment. And I think this is already a good um, indicator that what we have been trying or what we have been doing at the European Union level is already um, resonating um, in, in, in other fora. For, for us, and I'm looking now, and I'm talking now about the regulatory approach to, to maritime transport, to shipping. For us, uh, international cooperation, international dimension is a key for a global sector. I want to start with it, and I will probably say it also at the end of my, of my intervention. We, this, this is the best way forward, and this is the, the way that, that allows for, for the most inclusive approach approach. But at the same time, European Commission takes very seriously our responsibility to deliver on the expectations of citizens uh, in the EU, which have spoken very strongly in favor of solutions pushing for greening of economy, the support for the Green Deal approach, and so on and so forth. And if you look at the European Green Deal that was announced um, in more, than, more than a year ago, we look at it a bit as, a, as our national action plan 
to decarbonize international shipping, uh, because this is also what IMO has called upon in the 2018 strategy. Europe uh, has a very clear vision to be the first climate neutral continent by 2050. We've increased our level of ambition in terms of reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by at least 55% by 2030. And with all that, it clearly indicates that all sectors of economy have to contribute shipping included. Having said that, we have also been very clear in the very same Green Deal communication that when we will be looking at measures to decarbonize shipping, including emission trading scheme, it will be done in coordination and in compatibility with an international framework. But what I, uh, what I would also like to point to, 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 to things that have been said uh, before is that the solution is, uh, is not only about one uh, measure. If you look at the IMO strategy, it looks at quite a basket of measures, if I may say so, that need to be uh, developed in the short term and in the longer term. And it's looking at carbon pricing, it's looking at operational measures, it's looking at fuels, it's looking at technical measures. It's a bit the same approach that we have also had at the EU level to look at different angles, at, at vessels, at supply, at demand, at R&D, at financing, because it's not easy to come up just with one single instrument that will, will deal with a sector as complex and as uh, diverse as shipping is. And I, I completely agree that we need to regulate differently. We have to learn a new approach to regulation going away from the old times when we had you know, one type of fuel and things were relatively easy. We also need to acknowledge that there may be different levels of ambition in different parts of the world. And we need to come up with instruments that will allow to account for that, but that will not push the level of ambition downwards. Because if, if, if I think, you know, where we see our role in the context of the IMO uh, debate, we sort of see ourselves as the ones continuously trying to push the, the level of ambition higher. But an effective way to, to do that is to be part of the discussion. That's why I started by saying that for, for us, IMO uh, level of regulation is extremely important. But that means that we will be using different means and measures to push that level of ambition higher, including coming up with regulatory solutions at the EU level that will then fit into whatever will be developed at the IMO level. I'll stop here for now. Thank you. Does the, does the EU regulation in its leadership approach depart from IMO, uh, the IMO status of regulation and and does it how do you achieve synchronicity across or consistency across those regimes? I I I think I think we actually we actually have because if if I look at at past discussions you know even discussions concerning uh, reduction of sulfur contents or of marine fuels there the discussion started at IMO it was then picked up by the EU then we went ahead with the with the with the regulatory framework which was then. Uh, well, echoed, which was then confirmed also at a global level by the IMO. So actually, you know, it's, it's, 
synchronicity doesn't necessarily mean that everything happens at the same time, also because we have a different speed of regulating uh, at national level, at regional level, at DIMO level. But for me, what is important is that ultimately we have a, a consistent and complementary um, setup which works for an international sector. Um, but, um, you know, European Commission has been very clear, we are going to propose inclusion of shipping in the emission trading scheme. We are going to come up with, with a proposal to push for the uptake of alternative fuels. That will be on the table this summer. That will then be discussed by European Parliament and, and um, European uh, Union member states. But that doesn't prevent us from discussions on, on similar topics in the context of, of the IMO. Sana referred to the, to the meeting uh, on alternative fuels and life cycle um, approach at the IMO. We, one, of the, one of the speakers in that, in that event is actually a, a colleague from, from my team who will be talking about you know, the, the document we presented to the IMO on life cycle approach, which we absolutely agree is super important. So one, does not prevent the other. What is important is that there is uh, there is complementarity, and that um, well, and that what 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 is done at, at the EU level fits uh, the global uh, picture. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Magda. Guy Platten, welcome from the International Chamber of Shipping. Guy, uh, you've heard our our combination of voices today. Tell us what your perspective is on this. Where are where is the International Chamber on this and, and where do you want to land? There's been some thanks, uh, John. Thanks to Capital Links and Nicholas for inviting me onto this uh, panel. A really interesting um, comments from, from colleagues on this panel. And you, you, you can't but help but agree with all of them in, in some way. I think what, you know, we represent a global industry, global ship owners. What I think industry is looking for now going forward is certainty so we can make those investment decisions and true leadership at the member state level. Um, I think Magda mentioned the point about if they want any system developed in the EU to be on the, rolled out on a global basis or done in conjunction. That is so important. We mustn't get into a situation where we have different regulations in different parts of the world. We also, you know, because I think that's an abrogation of leadership, to be, to be honest with you. We, we need to have a global solution because actually just being able to cut emissions in Europe is not good enough. We need to cut emissions on a global basis if we're going to save lives. And, I, and it reminded a little bit of, uh, of the Titanic, actually. So the Titanic, a, a major disaster hit the iceberg, many lives were lost. But it, it didn't fall to one country to say, well, we'll just improve the regulation for ship design there. There was a, a, you know, a global getting together a convention, the SOLAS convention, which then set out the, the, the scene for the whole world to make sure many, many lives are saved. So I, I would just plead with that. I think... Shipping has had a bad press in some ways. We've been seen as reactive and not on the front foot. I, I would disagree, but I, I understand that perception. I mean, we realize that market-based measures are gonna be a, an essential tool going forward, but it has to be coupled also with the right research, the right investment um, into not just whether hydrogen can be used as a fuel, but the entire infrastructure that goes with it. So those market-based measures do actually do what they're designed to do, which is to drive behavioral change to a zero carbon future. And I think we probably don't help ourselves a little bit with the IMO roadmap to cut emissions by 50% by 2050. Actually, once we've got those zero carbon technologies, we're gonna get net zero, that, that's going to follow. That, without a shadow of a doubt, that's going to, to, to come along 
very quickly because there'd be too many commercial and business pressures to, to, to not let that happen. So maybe we need to start saying that actually we're committed to net zero going forward. But I agree with Caroline and, and others that the fund and Asane, the fund proposals we put forward, that's not in competition with the market measure. That's as part of this whole suite of things we're going to have to put in place if we're going to achieve this, this goal that we've set ourselves. And I believe, absolutely believe that we'll, we'll, we'll get. I think we also need to educate the wider society, you know, that, that there's going to be a cost to all of this. And that um, I think Lassie said, you know, the cost isn't definitely borne by ship owners, it's borne by the supply chain. So we do need to have a bit of education because surveys come out, people, society, they say they want a green future, but you don't always see that they're actually prepared to pay for that. So that's it. And the final thing I would just, the plea I would say is, whilst in the developed world, we've got all these high ambitions, let's make sure we don't leave anyone behind in terms of the, 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 the less developed world. And we're seeing it now in vaccines. Um, it's a, the, the developed world is rolling out the vaccines. Their economies are going to get started much quicker than those in the developing world. So I, I would also plea again that the solution we're going forward is a global solution that, that really does tackle climate change. So I've, I've meandered all over the place, John. So I hope that that, that helps. No, I think you've touched on. I think you've touched on some very key points, Caroline. From the ship owner's perspective. How do you see the EU regulatory approach? And, and Meg, this comment, did you want to comment on that? And, and is there alignment? Is there disagreement? Is there a potential for agreement? Okay. Um, wow, loaded question. So for, <laughs> for the, the shipping industry in Singapore, um, we are not aligned with the EU ETS, yeah, the market-based measures that they want to impose on the shipping, primarily because um, we want to ensure that whatever taxes or whatever um, monies that the shipping has paid into any fund, it goes back to the research and development for the shipping industry, for the maritime industry. And with the EU ETS, I'm not sure that it's going to happen for the maritime industry. So I think um, for us, we feel that um, the IMO is a supranational body. It is one that overarches the whole, um, all the member states, 160 plus of us. So we, as a small state, as a, um, but playing a global role in the maritime center, we would really look towards um, the IMO as the, as the body that comes up with the solutions and the regulatory policies. Thanks. Thank you, Caroline. Sana, did you want to weigh in here on, on that point? How aligned are, are ship owners? Yeah, well, uh... Yeah, I can speak for our part, of course, of <laughs> the ship owners. Uh, uh, but but I would say uh, I agree with those. Of course, I, I believe everyone has said that that we need global regulation, and and that's that's the default. Of course, we 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 operate in the entire world, and and it simply doesn't make sense to have a patchwork of, uh, for instance, in emission trading systems that are even overlapping because they cover voyages. Uh, that goes outside of the territory, so so that would be that that is really really uh, too complex uh, to handle. 
Uh, at the same time, uh, I would also uh, agree with Magda that that uh, there are member states that need to push in the IMO, uh, of course, and we have seen uh, the EU done that, uh, as Magda mentioned, on the software regulation. I don't think we would have had the IMO 2020 if it hadn't been uh, for the EU who said, well, we'll just introduce our own requirements uh, in, in, if you don't. And it's the same actually with the data collection system uh, where the EU also came with, the, with their uh, MRV, uh, which, which actually has some elements that, that the data collection system in the IMO does not have. So, uh, so, uh, so in that sense, we really hope that, that the EU countries will also uh, push some of those elements at the IMO. So, so it, it is necessary that, that there are member states that push in the IMO. Um, uh, we, it remains to be seen whether the IMO can, can uh, accelerate those discussions. Uh, we, we, we want the IMO uh, to, to solve the problem. Uh, but it remains to be seen whether they can do that. And we hope that, that the IMO uh, the, this year, uh, 2021, and the important meetings uh, this year will show that, that they can do that. So uh, that's really a, an, uh, encouraging uh, all IMO member states to, to, to accelerate there. Yeah. Well, I say, how, how realistic is this? What are the concrete problems that you see in, in, in these steps? Well, well yeah, yeah, I wanted to jump in on a couple of points, and, and let's start and start with that. And the problem I don't see is the cost to society of decarbonizing. That's negligible. Uh, and just to give a specific example, and we could have our combination carriers uh, carried by ammonia, absolute emission-free wheat from South America to Europe, and they would increase the price of bread in Europe with less than half a cent. And these examples are plentiful. This is not a question of society cost. And just uh, to give another way to that, we have had fuel prices of $750 per ton of fuel. Most likely we will you know, be able at scale to get down to about $1,000 per ton of fuel with the same energy equivalence on ammonia. That has not put any business, any country, nothing out of business. So we're taking this uh, implication issue, I think out of context. Looking at history, we have had very high energy prices. Uh, uh, quick comment to, to Magda on, on we need a lot of regulations. I agree. And energy efficiency, we need to really, really make sure we don't emit more than we need in the short term. But I'm not too much concerned because there's so much focus on it. The problem is that we are at the edge of what the current technology and fuel base can deliver. Maybe we have another 10, 20% to go, but that's it. On speed, we have taken most of it. Uh, and, and that's what we have. So that's why I'm so concerned about the energy transition. How do we get to a new system? And how do we make sure that ship owners in the second half of this decade do not invest in assets which are locked into the last generation's infrastructure? And, um, and that's why I so much believe that we need to put in a tax. And the tax have two targets. One is to close the competitiveness gap, but as much to fund the transition. So when, when Guy and others are talking about this, uh, this first level of fund on R&D, I agree to the fund as long as it's used to pilots, not to develop technology, but to deliver and pilot technology. The technology is there. The virtualized demands and the earthers of the world, they're investing billions into technology, but somebody needs to acquire it. And then, sorry for a long intervention, but I need one last mm -hmm. point, and that is, uh, so we all talk about global regulations and we agree to that, but that's not the question. The question is, how do we make it that happen? 
And it won't happen by itself because an IMO is not a business. It's 170 countries with different agendas. Uh, so in a way you need a, let's say a, as for security regulation in the world, we have a, had a 9-11 moment where in nine months, all the ports of the world were basically fenced in and we had security regulations on the vessels. One of the reasons why I'm so supportive to EU's initiative is that we on carbon need a change moment. I think EU, by putting into the, 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 their carbon tax also the inbound and maybe even outbound into EU will be that moment where those countries in IMO realize it's not a question of whether we will tax CO2 on deep sea shipping, it's a question of who will do it and how we'll do it. And that will change the dynamics. Thank you, Lasse. Magda, would you like to would you like to reply, please? I see that hand up, and I yes. think you might have a few comments. You're at the cutting edge of what's happening. Go ahead. Oh, you know, I'm not hearing very often that the European Commission is at cutting edge. So I'm gonna I'm gonna write down that and you know print it and put it on my wall um, for bad days. Uh, no, but seriously, uh, but first of all, it's it's really interesting uh, for me to to listen to the comments from everybody because these are all the thoughts and perspectives that I like to think we we know of and we take account of, but it's never enough to hear them and. Um, um, I would like to maybe say two, two things or three things. Um, one, I didn't say it in the opening, um, th this question of you know, how, we, how, how we come up with future-proofed with future uh, regulation. It is obviously the biggest challenge. I said we need to, we need to regulate differently. But for example, with the, with the piece of legislation we are finalizing on alternative fuels, what we really want to achieve is to provide the sector with a perspective all the way to 2050 so that they know what they will be expected to deliver in terms of alternative fuels with reduced uh, green, uh, GEG content. And we're gonna put numbers on what this reduction will need to look like every five years until 2050 to make sure that everybody knows what's needed. And second, to be very clear, towards 2050, it will not work with, with drop-in uh, blends. It will not work with 10, 15% incremental exchange by, a little, by using a little bit of biofuels. We also, of course, it, it, it's a rather complex approach and I'm not gonna go into details because we also want to make uh, uh, sure that there are safeguards that it will actually work for the sector and that there's a possibility to, to catch up at different, uh, at different pace. When you see the, the proposal, I'm happy to have a detailed discussion on the, on the contents, but the idea for the proposal is also to very, very clearly award those who go zero emission earlier, because we know that we need um, zero emission on nearly zero emission ships on the water as quickly as possible, also because of the testing. We need to see how it works. We need to, in a way, the first ships like the 2023 uh, uh, methanol-fueled um, uh, container vessel from Maersk, it will actually be a real-life test case how the technology is working and what's needed to make it to make it function. And you know what's needed in terms of of, of fueling infrastructure, for example. You know how much of that fueling infrastructure will be needed and where. And we will be we are working also on a proposal on the on the supply. Uh, 
of, of uh, alternative fuel infrastructure in ports in the EU. But that's that's a, that's a side that's a side topic. And and the second comment I wanted to make um, is again this 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 thing between you know uh, EU and IMO uh, regulation. Uh, just to recall, we put the, the legislative proposals on the table uh, this summer. Then they will be negotiated by the two co-legislators, uh, member states and European Parliament. This is a process that takes time and it varies between proposals. It can take six months, but it can take 16 months or it can take three years. Then there is still some time before they kick in and before they enter into force. We will be very much hoping that in parallel to that process, IMO will be coming up with uh, a regulatory framework for a market-based measure in parallel. And we will then be able to make sure that those two are complementary. I, I don't believe that we really risk double counting with the current you know, technological solutions, with the detail, with systems that work and track and, and put information together, we will be able to have a system that will work at EU level and will be complemented at the global level. I'm also not overtly worried yet about a patchwork of solutions globally because frankly speaking, and maybe that's not good, but, but I haven't heard about many other regions coming up with a market-based measure or, or, a, or a specific measure to push for, for uptake of alternative fuels in shipping yet. If it, if it happens, then we'll, then we'll see how we adjust. But I'm, I'm, I'm really, you know, I, 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 we, we have done it. We have done it in the past. We have found me ways of being complementary and, and in sync with what's, what's happening at the, at the international level. Because on top of everything, we also transpose international IMO regulation into EU framework to make sure that enforcement and compliance is, is strengthened and that there is a properly um, functioning level playing field for all ships calling into, into EU ports. And just uh, just a final comment: this question of, of of level playing field and of flag neutrality is something that we will definitely uh, have uh, embedded in the proposals that we will be coming up with. Sorry about being too long. Thanks. No, no, thank, thanks, Magda. Demetrius, does that comfort you? You've heard uh, Magda's remarks, and and what does what does the ship owner, what does the supply chain in the industry, how do they comply? What's the next step? Well, with, with, with Magda, we've discussed uh, several times and uh, there's lots of things that we agree on and there are a few things that we uh, don't agree on. Um, I think if we just quickly go back to the uh, EU ETS, I think Caroline uh, also uh, alluded to this. Um, for, for, for our particular tramp bulk oil sector, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult system and, and, and really quite incompatible uh, with our industry, but but we do realize that there is a political uh, impetus behind this. And uh, what I talked about earlier is that the easy solution is not always the right one. And um, there have been initiatives, and in fact, there's, there's, there's one on the table now, uh, which uh, has been tabled by the Swedish Ship Owners Association, the Greek Ship Owners Association, uh, and a, an environmental NGO, TND, Transport and Environment. And I won't go into the, into the fine details, but we, 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 we're trying to find a way where, where a, a big sector of the shipping industry 
can uh, comply with ETS in a practical manner. Um, we talk about, we talk about, uh, I mean, we're talking about instead of buying uh, ETS directly, we're talking about creating a fund which will buy the, the, uh, the ETS. Um, the, 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 the polluter pays uh, principal uh, for the commercial operator, uh, no free allowances, and um, uh, the geographical scope of the system uh, would be uh, quite broad. Um, and the joint initiative demonstrates that it is possible to be ambitious without disrupting a well-functioning uh, industry. Um, and, and uh, you know, we talk about alternative fuels, completely agree. Uh, our company is very definitely is an SME, five vessels. This uh, January, we tried to stem biofuel uh, in Rotterdam. Uh, it was unbelievably difficult. Um, there was there were so many uh, uh, obstacles put in our way um, that it, it simply became impossible. So here is a small company wanting to make a step, not in 2023, wanting to make a step in January 2021. And the regulation was not there. That's the, that's the simple, si simple fact. We tried to stem 600 tons of biofuel in Rotterdam in January, and you will not believe uh, the, 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 the hoops and hurdles that we had to jump over and, and, and jump through and things like that. So we have to make it um, uh, easier. Yes, perhaps biofuel is not the overall solution. It's not, it perhaps won't be, but it's a step in that direction. And if we cannot create regulu regulations which allow these steps, then I think uh, that we, we need to go back and look very, very carefully. And another passion of, of, uh, of Magda and mine as well is this uh, uh, clean uh, shore power, which I completely uh, support, but we have to also understand that the shore power has to be cleaner than the power produced on board. It has to be safe and it has to be uh, competitively uh, 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 available. So um, I'm, I'm very much for uh, entering, starting the transition now, not in 2023, but the regulations have got to assist us in this respect. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks, Demetrius. We we have about ten minutes left. I have we have a handful of questions. I'd like to I'd like to quickly try to address if we could. Um, Sean McLaughlin says to Lasse, absolutely agree with your comments about a need for more ambition. How can we get the IMO to recognize that when the the time of arrival is important, the slowest ship in the fleet will be increasingly irrelevant. They need to step up in ambition and pace of change, exclamation point. Any, any comments, Lasse? No, I, I, I am not sure if I got the gist of the question, but I think the issue is around the challenge of uh, prescriptive regulation on vessels, speed and performance. Uh, because you get so many uh, secondary effects by doing this and the other that, that uh, you don't really see when you sit, you know, and have a desktop uh, regulatory 
development. And that's why I so much favor to have the market solving the decarbonization issue by putting that price on the carbon. And even in the short term, I mean, if, if we put a price on carbon short term, that the, the, the one thing that would put down the speed the most or would you know, make it most economic to, to use low carbon vessel would be the fact that it costs more to have a high carbon vessel. So, so I think in this, it just shows that it's really hard to be good on EEXIs and EEDIs and CII should EEOI or AER. I mean, all these things are really difficult and, and I fully appreciate that. So, but we have to do all, both. We have to get easy regulations for blending in biofuels we need to make sure the vessels don't emit more than they need in the short term. And we need, 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 need to get going now in the transition. Thank you. Gavin Allwright asks, and, and this goes to the funding concerns that have been mentioned, wind propulsion can deliver up to a third of the energy component required for shipping, he says. So these funds are required for installations now too. How can we ensure that funding and decarbonization pathways are equitable and realistic within the decade? Anyone want to handle that? Well, I, I suppose uh, in terms of all these sort of things, that's why we proposed a, a, an industry fund to help in this in this process, really. So it's everyone's paying into it, and that can be used for all these sort of projects as well. So I think that's the, the solution. And then couple it with market-based measures, putting a price on carbon, all these other things we've talked about. It all has to go in parallel, in my view. Thank you. And, and Jeffrey Swain asked, this follows on Demetrius's comments, I think in tandem, has anyone looked at the carbon and environmental footprint of biofuels? Anyone want to handle that? Demetrius, go ahead. Yeah, it's a very relevant question because um, in fact, uh, the, the carbon factor of biofuels has not yet been uh, uh, fully um, uh, uh, developed at IMO um, and, and, and needs to be developed at IMO uh, because uh, one of the uh, issues is, is that when one is declaring either the uh, 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 European MRV or the IMO DCS, the data collection system, we need to have a carbon factor for the biofuels. Now, uh, the biofuels, that, and I'm talking always about sustainable biofuels. I'm not talking about biofuels where we're, we're taking crops uh, and, and using them uh, as fuel. And the marine industry's biofuels are quite different to the biofuels which are suitable for other industries. But it, it is a relevant concern to get um, the, uh, the carbon, uh, an accurate carbon factor for these fuels because uh, they will be one of the steps, uh, uh, not the only step, they will be one of the steps that's necessary to, to reach our long-term goals. Thank you. Thanks, we're, we're, we're winding down here. We've got, uh, let's see, we've got another question. How can we ensure carbon tax goes to fund or go or goes to funding the low carbon ship capital or loans as green funds? Anyone have a view on that? I think if 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 I if I may, John, not, I I think that's that that's a tricky question for any for any funding uh, or for any for, for any funding slash financing mechanism at any level. 
and I'm speaking for discussions we are having uh, at the European Commission with EU member states, and I'm sure the same discussion will happen in the IMO, namely who gets uh, who who controls the money that it will be will be gathered or will be will, will result from a market-based measure. I think uh, it, it requires pressure from, from the industry, from stakeholders, and it and it requires a lot of discussions. But just let's not deceive ourselves here. It's not, it's not a straightforward question. The finance ministers in each country worldwide are very interested in any possible source of um, income. And I leave it at that. Thank you. I think I think we're nearly out of time. Nicholas, are we out of time now, or do we have time for a final comment? We are a minute actually past the time. So okay. Well then, then let me just thank the panel, all of you for your your fine contributions. It's been a pleasure seeing everybody today. And again, Nicholas and Capital Link, thank you, and thank you all for watching. Have a thank great you to all of you. Thank 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 you.